What would it take for someone to walk away from faith? What would it take? What would it take you to walk away from your faith? It's a difficult question to ask, even as we celebrated <laughs> two baptisms. Amen? To see two young men at points of crisis find community, get their questions answered, and take a positive step in their journey. We celebrate that. I celebrate the work of Casey and what they're doing on college campuses. At the same time, we know, according to research, that uh, about 25% of the church seems to be deconstructing in some way, taking steps away in some way. So what would it take? Would it be some brilliant historian that has made the case against the resurrection and the truth of the Bible? Would it be a series of unanswered prayers of tragic events in your life where you continue to ask the question, why Jesus? And you just can't get an answer. Would it be a loss of community? Would it be finding identity and belonging somewhere far away from the church and finding nothing but hurt within it? What would it be? Maybe it would be a combination of a thousand little things and you're just tired. What would it be? Here's one thing I don't think it would be. And that would be a careful, deep, close look at Jesus in the Scriptures, in a community that loves you. Now, we're going to dive into some heavy stuff this morning. And we're going to look at some of these questions that uh, seem to be uh, difficult for folks. And I want to lay out uh, a, what I believe is a helpful pathway, a helpful series of steps uh, that uh, I think can be helpful to bringing people closer to faith. If you've been with us the last uh, few weeks, we've been in this series that uh, we've called Why Jesus? And we've looked at this opening in the Gospel of Luke. And I'll just refresh your memory. Um, I'll read it new to you if you're new with us. This is from Luke 1, verse 3. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And we've said the last few weeks that embedded in this, this introduction to Luke's gospel is a purpose. There's a why that says, I want you to have certainty. I want you to have some safety. I want you to have some security in what you believe. I want you to know it's true. 
and why it's true so that you can walk through anything that you face in life. Luke also suggests a particular process. He says there's a careful, thoughtful investigation of the eyewitness accounts and the evidence. So how do you know what you know to be true? It's a great question. And then we've also suggested some practices the last couple weeks of leaning into how to have a gospel conversation with somebody. As we look at some of those statistics of people deconstructing, people walking away, we also see opportunity in our day and age where it seems to be that people are more open to spiritual things. There's a variety of metrics we can look at that, but we see both. And we're asking the Lord, how do we step into this moment and bring people through the power of the Holy Spirit closer to Jesus? We said last week that we often meet people in their pain. That people aren't typically walking down the street wondering about the historicity of the resurrection and saying... Hey, Jeremiah, tell me why this is true. We don't tend to get that. However, in pain, in struggle, in trial, when we're around people, they tend to ask some why questions. We said last week that there tended to be three different why questions that people ask. There's the why of despair that I located in the hospital room. Why, Jesus, would you allow this to happen? The pain has just occurred. The difficulty is there. The waves of grief are high. And our response in that moment, the best response we can probably have is one of empathy, of listening, not of preaching, not of giving an academic response, but of simply listening. We said that there was a, perhaps a second why question. That was the processing why. I put this in the the family room. This is where perhaps a little bit removed from the pain, but a time to process. And perhaps the best response to that is to to show people the compassion of Jesus. He gets it. He understands. He's been there. But then we said there was a third level. This is the need to know more why. This I called the the podcast room. And this is where we actually want to dive in and we want to ask some of those questions. We want to get into a dialogue My friends, empathy is wonderful. It is a great start. At some point, though, we need more than that. We're going to be in situations where we want to be equipped to have the dialogue that the Lord may need us to have. Today, we're going to get into that podcast room a little bit. I do want to remind you of this, and I want to put this slide up. Next week's going to be a little more Q&A. That's going to structure the message. Okay. If there's no questions, then I'll just have to make up my own. 
already have a few, but if you've got burning questions, yeah, that's, a, that's an open invitation. Good night, I'll trust Jesus on this one. Okay, but if there's questions you want answered, okay, let's talk. Let's get those out there. So there's a number that you can text. I've already gotten some real thorny ones. And that's good, right? If you can't talk about it in here, good night, where can you talk about it? Just get on the internet. You'll find all that you need. Oh my goodness, I'm slow down a little bit here. Okay. Now, um, so I'm going to take you to Acts 17. And I believe in this particular passage, the Apostle Paul is going to lay out some principles for us that uh, I believe are really helpful. Okay? Acts, if you're new to the Bible, and let me just, I, I, I can't say this enough. If you're new to the Bible, I am so glad that you're here. One of the things I loved about their, the testimonies of those guys I had questions, I didn't understand, and I asked, and I got some responses that were helpful. Amen. I'm so thankful for the people that were around those guys. So if you're new and you've got questions, you're in the right place. If you know Acts 17 backwards and forwards, you're still in the right place. We need people who can continue to grow, continue to help, and give some answers. So this is Paul. Paul's on a, on a um, sharing the gospel tour. He's been in Thessalonica. They roughed him up a little bit. He goes to Berea, and he's talking to Jewish folks for the most part. So he's going to reason from their scriptures and that will, for the most part, be the context of his presentation. But then he's going to go to Athens, which is a different place. More of a Gentile, more of a non-Jew place. Acts 17, beginning in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it 
is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. I pray that my words are clear and true and helpful and above all, that they bring you glory and honor. Burn off whatever doesn't do those things. Holy Spirit, be our teacher this morning. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, I want to take you to Paul in the podcast room for a moment. Let's make some observations from Paul in Athens. Now, a caveat. I am not Paul, you are not Paul, we are not in Athens, it's 2024. There is a cultural gap, so we got to be careful. Okay, the Bible's for us, it is not written directly to us, so we need to do some interpretive work here. We need to be careful that we don't make too big of a leap in our principles. However, as we look at this, there are striking similarities in the culture of Athens and even what we see in our world today. Let me itemize. City is full of idols. Check. There's a marketplace of ideas in a, some level of a culture of discussion and debate. There's curiosity about new ideas. I love that line in verse 21. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. There are competing visions of the good life. We won't get into all the Epicurean and Stoic philosophy and all that, but I would, I would challenge you to do this. That there's some game that's going to occur a week from today. Turn that thing on, watch a little pregame, 
Go all the way through, watch every commercial, watch the halftime show, watch every camera shot to some singer (laughs) that's dating some other player. Let all those songs go through your mind. Okay? Listen to that. You will see all the ideas represented in our culture. You're going to see everything. You will see some very pro-Christian messages. Millions of dollars in the He Gets Us campaign that's kind of cool that you'll see. All right, you'll, see, you'll hear testimonies of different players if you, you know, do a little investigation there. Really interesting, you know, both quarterbacks are believers at some level. Uh, really interesting, um, Patrick Mahomes, quarterback for the Chiefs, has a tattoo on his leg that was inspired by Acts 20. Just found this out yesterday at our men's gathering. We were watching a testimony of him. But Acts 20 is this um, story where um, a guy named Eutychus, young man, is listening to Paul preach and preach and preach and preach. And he falls asleep and he's on this windowsill and he falls to his death three stories down. Paul runs down, brings him back to life. Never heard of a tattoo based on that particular. <laughs> Philippians 4.13, all day long. Acts 20, never, never seen that. But for Mahomes, it's like, hey, I want to be all in. Interesting interpretation of the, the passage. But I thought, okay, that's cool. But my point is, you're going to see everything under the sun Super Bowl Sunday. In some ways, it's a modern-day Athens. So when we look at Paul, he's going to understand his context. He's going to engage in some curious conversation. He's going to build bridges, and he's going to focus on the resurrection. Okay, we'll break this down a little bit more. But um, I want to suggest to us that we can learn from him as we think about how to have a gospel conversation in a culture of deconstruction. All right, I'm going to spend just a few minutes on this uh, this morning. And the first point I want to make is that we need to seek to understand the culture of deconstruction. Okay, we see in Paul that uh, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. One of the things Paul is able to do is see, examine, consider, know the culture around him. Now, let's talk about deconstruction for just a minute. Is anybody a trained philosopher in the room? Okay. If you are, this is going to be an oversimplification. If you hate philosophy, you've got bad memories from college, you're looking at your watch already. Okay. If that's you, this might be a little too much. Okay. Try to hit a middle spot. So when we think about the term deconstruction, first of all, there is the philosophical literary analysis term. Having spent time, done time in English graduate school, this was a big deal a few years ago. All right, and it comes from uh, French philosopher Jacques Derrida, and he talks about really how language has no ultimate meaning. 
that there's no objective meaning to language. Okay, you can read thousand-page books in French, which I can't do, but that's kind of what he, that's the conclusion that he reaches. So from that, we get a philosophy that says there's really no objective truth. There's nothing that's true for all people for all time. Everything is subjective. There's no center. Everything is just seen through the eyes of the individual. So if you push that philosophy, that's what you get. Several years ago, um, when, I was, when I was teaching at a big school on the west side, uh, I was a sponsor of two different clubs, and we actually got to meet during the school day. Fellowship of Christian Athletes one week, philosophy club the next week. How much fun was that in a big public school? Okay, co-led it with an atheist and a New Ager. Okay, and one of the first questions we asked was, does truth, capital T, exist? In other words, are there things that are true for all people, for all times, or is it all just little t truth? And one of the students said, Mr. Gallman, the only time you capitalize the word truth is if it's at the beginning of a sentence. I was like, okay, you didn't understand the question. (laughs) Okay? So people come from different points of view. But that's one of the ways to think about philosophical deconstruction is it eventually gets you to the place where there's no standard, there's no objective truth. Give me a thumbs up if you're tracking with me right now, okay? That's what, what, that's what you get. You push that. Now, there's what I would call artistic deconstruction where uh, we'll look at conventions and we'll kind of undermine them. Any fans of The Office? Okay. In many ways, The Office was a deconstruction of a conventional situation comedy. Anybody like The Matrix, like those movies? The real weird movies where perception and all that, that, that that's another example of that. All right, let me, let me throw up a, a picture on the screen here of uh, kind of some postmodern or deconstructionist architecture. Okay, this is a uh, building in uh, Czechoslovakia known as the Dancing House. All right, you see how it's all unique and creative? The irony of this approach, though, what kind of foundation do you think that building has? (laughs) A traditional one. So we can get all fancy, but the foundation still has to be solid. Then there's also what I would simply call the um, questioning deconstruction. That can actually be pretty healthy. Where you say, all right, let's look at everything and let's test it and see if it really holds. A few weeks ago, I talked about Frederick Douglass and his slave narrative. And how he said, you know what, I hate the Christianity of the South, but I love the Christianity of Christ. In some ways, that was a form of saying, all right, I'm going to hold up what I've been given. I'm going to look at it. I'm going to examine it. And then I'm going to test it. So let's make a distinction between 
deconstruction that goes all the way into there's no truth to what might be a healthy process of just saying, you know what, maybe some of my own experiences need to be questioned. So there can be a whole range of processes. I would suggest to us this morning, though, what is really healthy and helpful is for us to have some understanding of what people are talking about. And then really to say what type of deconstruction are we doing? So we want to understand that. All right, the second thing. Ask genuine, curious, loving questions to understand someone's story and point of view. Ask good questions. Paul, now, Paul was in a rough and tumble kind of debating culture. I also believe he's asking some good questions. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. I love what Kara Powell from uh, the Fuller Youth Institute says. She says, so it's not doubt that's toxic to faith, it's silence that is toxic to faith. It's not doubt that's toxic. We can come out the other end of a process that can be difficult and actually be strengthened in our faith. But silence is what's toxic. And from that, she also says this. One of the mantras we try to teach leaders and parents is when it comes to young people, never make a statement if you can ask a question instead. Always start with questions. Let's start with questions. Let's Try to understand where people are actually coming from. A couple good questions. How did you come to believe that? Everybody's got a story. How did you come to believe that? I go back to that philosophy club. One person that I led that club with went to a Christian school, had a horrible experience with somebody there. Started down a pathway. Another person had things that he just couldn't wrap his mind around with the Bible and didn't have a satisfactory response. I don't think anybody deconstructs or doubts in a vacuum. So let's understand people's stories. A couple other helpful things. I wonder how belief in this connects to your experience of that. How do, how do we help people see what they believe and then what they actually experience? Let's help people connect those dots. It's easy to believe certain things, but how do I actually live that out and connect it with my experience? I might say, you know what, morality, it's all relative, it's up to the individual. Well, if somebody wants to come steal something from you, then you're going to probably say that's a universal principle. All right? How do we connect the two? Sometimes we may get really hard questions about experiences that are, that are really difficult. And you know what the best response might be? 
I don't know. But this is what I do know. I don't know why that horrible tragedy happened. Who am I to try to connect those dots? But I do know that Jesus has gone through the same thing. I don't know, but that's a good opener, or that's a good response that I think we all need to have in our pocket here. So we want to ask those genuine good questions. Another one, especially for parents out there, grandparents. What do you no longer believe that you think I still believe? Pass the potato salad. What do you no longer believe that you think I still believe? That's a great question. That's a great question. Let us not be afraid to ask really good questions. That's a good one. Now, if you ask the question, (laughs) you can't be afraid of the answer. All right? Again, silence is what's going to kill things. Community in doubt is not. All right? We've got a great opportunity coming up. Pastor Dean's going to lead a class called uh, Reason for God. The late Tim Keller, master of all this stuff. Started a church in Manhattan. A bunch of smart people with a lot of questions. It's not just the answers, but it's the approach that's really helpful here. Third thing, build bridges of mutual understanding, common concern, humility, and love. We see this in a couple ways from Paul here. Verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. He's beginning to build a bridge. Then 27, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. That's what Paul's doing, saying, look, I'm going to operate from within your own view. That's critical for us. That's really helpful for us to be able to do. Now, when we think about, okay, what what is our culture? What do we value? What are the things that have come to the fore? I think simply of, you know, and Kara Powell and others would agree with me on this, or or I would agree with her, (laughs) Identity, belonging, purpose. Big questions. Identity, belonging, purpose. Do we have answers to those questions? The identity question. To put your faith and trust in Jesus and to become a child of God? Belonging? To be a part of the family of God, to be with brothers and sisters in Christ, those are powerful answers that we ought not shy away from. 
Even I think of Paul in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for we are all one in Christ. What a beautiful vision of a multicultural, multi-ethnic society. Go all the way to the end, go to Revelation, and you see every tribe, every tongue, every nation. We've got the resources to answer the questions that our culture is asking. Purpose, to know that God has created us and he has prepared in advance good works for us to do. And then finally, and I'll just say this quickly, point people to the Jesus of the Bible. That sounds so simple but to the Jesus of the Bible. Verse 31, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Rob Reiner, remember the show All in the Family, some of you? You remember Meathead? That's Rob Reiner. The movie A Few Good Men, he directed it. When Harry Met Sally, some of the, some of the, the big ones. Uh, he said this in an interview with a, a, another Christian, or with a Christian. He said, I'm not a Christian, but I try to live by the teachings of Jesus. There is nothing more morally profound than treating people as you would like to be treated. Say amen, that's a step. Now what would you do with that response? Here's one of the things you might do is you might say, okay, if, if Jesus is all that, what did Jesus actually say about himself? Did he actually rise from the dead or not? Is he actually the Son of God or not? Friends, we can go down a journey, we can listen, we can ask good questions, we can do all these things, but at the end of the day, Jesus either rose or he didn't. And if he did, if it's really true, then he is everything. Amen? Amen. Well... This is a start to next week. We'll have more questions that we can respond to. But I want to take us now to the communion table. And I want to give you a moment to reflect, a moment to consider, a moment to bring this all back to Jesus. I just want to invite you to bow your head. Close your eyes. And I want you to picture this scene of Jesus gathering his disciples in the upper room, taking the bread and giving thanks and breaking it and giving it to them and saying, this is my body given for you. Take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. And then taking that cup, saying this cup represents 
the blood of the new covenant, blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Just as you receive this bread, receive this cup. I want you to picture that scene. And when we do that, we look back and we remember and we proclaim the Lord's death. And we look forward to his resurrection. So I'm going to pray. And then if you're a follower of Jesus, I invite invite you to come forward and then take the elements back to your seat and receive on your own. Father, we come to you this morning thankful for who you are, for your character, for your Son, for the Holy Spirit. And now as we remember, work in our hearts, work in our minds. Reveal what you need to us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. When you're ready, come. The table's open to receive.